I believe now that tradespeople have got the opportunity to get super, super rich really, really quickly. 90% of businesses fail in their first year. Yeah, no shit, because they don't know what they're doing. Found out after three or four days he was selling weed from the back of the van. <laughs> so, you know. Two thirds of trades businesses have been a victim to van related crime. You don't know what you're doing it for. Mm -hmm. You feel constantly stuck, so it makes the entire experience a really bad one. That's the main reason, in my opinion, that most businesses aren't growing, is because they're not spending on leads to make sales. Hi, it's Joseph Valente here from the Trade Mastermind. I'm the CEO, and welcome to another episode of Trade Secrets. I'm joined today by my co-host, Mr. Paul Selman. Mr. Paul Selman, thanks for you? coming down, champ. How's it going? Very, very good, mate. Yeah, it's been an absolutely smashing week in business, so good to, uh, good to be back in the, uh, in the office. Brilliant, brilliant. How does it feel to be sat doing a podcast instead of on the tools as it's mid-November and, you know, now yeah. you're sat in a shirt and suit? A shirt and trousers rather than being in your Snickers gear and in somebody's loft. Yeah, it's, it's slightly surreal really, to be fair. And it's actually about five years to the day um, now that I actually decided that I wanted to make it off the tools. It's not five years since I actually started the journey, but I, I had one of these Facebook memories actually mm -hmm. pop up the other day. And it was me in a loft in winter, freezing cold, not wanting to be there, really unhappy, taking a selfie and thinking, right, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> so, yeah, I remember yeah. those days well. Yeah. For everybody watching this podcast, me and Paul were or are both former tradespeople. We've both worked on the tools. We both had plumbing and heating companies. So we really understand, for many of you watching this, what it's like to you know operate in the winter. And it's tough. I mean, I remember, I'd say my worst experience going back to an apprentice was when I used to get paid 30 pounds a day. I used to have to get up in the morning, I'd get into my polo that I bought for 500 quid, I would drive 15 minutes over to the other side of town. Right. It had no heaters in it, so the wing mirror used to be always frozen, and I remember I used to stick my head out of the window, because I'd always wake up late. <laughs> yeah, of course. And then I'd drive to the other side of town, and then we'd get into another car, to which we then had to drive two hours to Cromer, near Norwich, and then we were working in old people's um, homes, new build development. So it was just big stone, empty blocks of putting in all of the first fixes. And you used to have to take a lead light up there and go down these really dark corridors and stay in a wet, dark breeze block room, laying all these pipes and sitting there for about nine hours a day. I'd have three pairs of long johns, I'd have a hat, I'd have gloves, and um, you know, then we'd have to finish at five o'clock, then drive two hours home. So I was doing, I don't know, maybe 14 to 16 hours a day and getting paid 30 pounds an hour for the privilege. Fantastic. 30 pounds a day, not 30 pounds an hour. I wish I was getting 30 pounds an hour. If I was getting 30 pounds an hour, I probably wouldn't have been moaning about it, but 30 pounds a day for all of those times. Yep, come on in Malvina, thank you very much. Just on cue. Um, <laughs> Yes, yeah, so um, yeah, tell us tell us about your worst moment then, Paul, as a tradesperson. Well, to be fair, actually, looking back now, I can use uh, sort of rose-tinted glasses, but there's quite a few bad moments, to be fair. Um, 
there was there was a couple when I was on my own. Mm -hmm. um, but and then as I grew the business, you tend to find that your problems just get different. Yeah. Uh, which is something I wasn't really foreseeing. But it was always the feeling like I was just chasing it. So it was this groundhog day. Mm -hmm. um, I could never seem to get away from exactly the position I was in and get to where I, I thought that I deserved to be. Mm -hmm. And I think if you sort of you make that as a as a cumulative experience there, where it just goes with you, just you don't know what you're doing it for. Mm -hmm. Um, you feel constantly stuck. So it makes the entire experience a really bad one. Mm. Um, and you always try and then work yourself out of that, um, that position and mm -hmm. you never get there. It yeah. seems like the horizon is just never, never reachable, you know? Mm. So I think when I first, uh, going back to my first ever job, I was that nervous um, about changing a set of taps that I'd actually got off rated people. Ooh. That my stepdad actually <laughs> followed me to the job a half an hour later, just in case I got stuck. Uh, the task. I've never changed a set of taps before. And then I walked out of that place with about four. Paul didn't come up like most of us real gas engineers no, I was came a up. Six-week plumber out of the Paul Navy. Paul was, was a six-week guy. In fact, I was a Sparky first. So I did my apprenticeship in the Navy as a Sparky. Yeah. And, uh, and oh, were you a Sparky as well? I was a Sparky as well. Yeah. Follow me. That's it. Yeah, specialising in weapon systems, so I could blow <laughs> shit up in the Navy. <laughs> Had to stop but you couldn't wire up, up a bike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you went from bumper. blowing shit up in the navy to blowing up people's fuse boards. That's it. That's exactly what I did. <laughs> so yeah, but having my stepdad follow me to my first ever job, and then walked out with forty-five quid in my hand, and I thought, you know, I've made it. This is great. And then mm. the next job was a hundred quid for fixing the toilet. Um, didn't know how to do that. Uh, but the, I think probably the worst job was when I actually tried to do a big higher ticket item. Yeah. And it was my first bathroom, and I was there for ten days. Um, didn't know how to quote, so I just made the price up off the top of my head. Full bathroom, full tiling, I did it for 500 quid. And then I think actually when you looked at the figures, if I'd even dared to, I probably did it for a loss. Yeah. So, you know, you, you don't know what you don't know, do you? You don't know what you don't know. <laughs> oh, I remember when I was early days on the come up, I um, mean, Steve sat here, so I'm sure he's going to remember this moment. Um, and I was about 15, mm -hmm. and um, I'd only been an apprentice for a little while, and all of a sudden I thought I could tile, and I thought I could fit bathroom suites. So I said to my mum, listen, um, you guys going on holiday, yeah, I'll tile the bathroom, and I'll do a fit a new bathroom suite, yeah? And you give us like 30 quid each. My friend was a tiler and he was 16 as well. So he was an apprentice tiler and I was an apprentice plumber. So they gave us 30 quid each. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought this is gonna take 48 hours or something. Anyway, halfway through the day, we spent the 30 quid on beers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we bought Stellas. Um, by 12 o'clock, we got bored of doing the work. Um, and then I realized we'd bit off way more than we could chew. And um, then they came back and there was no toilet. The floor wasn't tiled. Everything, all the tiles were taken off the wall. I don't think I'd plumb the sink back in. Uh, <laughs> and it was an absolute disaster. I and um, I think Steve ended up putting it all right. <laughs> and uh, having to retile everything. So, uh, yeah. Well, do you remember that day, Steve? <laughs> <laughs> no bathroom suite at all installed. But I did make up for it a few years later yeah. when I got good. I did fit a really nice bathroom suite, didn't I? And I took a week off on holiday and I, I fitted the nice bathroom suite to make up for it. So, But it's the same as in business, isn't it? You just have to learn as you go sometimes. Mm. But it's, uh, it's the long way and the tougher way to do it.
Yeah. You know, so yeah, if you can avoid that, it'd be a lot easier. I put a post out on LinkedIn this morning, and um, you know, it was that when I came up at fourteen, fifteen, everybody said to me, you know, get a trade, and you've got a skill for life. Mm -hmm. And I think that was just really, really great, solid advice. I think it was good advice, and I think that advice now more than ever is relevant to young people coming up. And I do think that getting a trade now for young people is more than just having a skill for life. It's actually about making um, your first million pounds. I believe now that tradespeople have got the opportunity to get super, super rich really, really quickly. And the reasons are that, you know, a plumber can train, get paid to um, learn the job, and then within two years, they're in a position where they can go out and they can start making lots and lots of money. You know, by 22, I was making a thousand pounds a day running my own business, profit, mm -hmm. just one man in a van, doing breakdowns and servicing. And, uh, you know, with the current population growth, through legal and illegal immigration. The stress that puts on the UK's infrastructure mm. is massive, and there's just no young people coming up into the sector anymore. Mm. So the skills are gonna become so sought after, so well paid, that if you're a young person watching this, my advice is the construction sector, okay, is the new social media influencer era. In, 24, 36, five years from now, everyone's going to have forgot social media. Marketing is going to have been taken over by AI. And the real gold are the people that are going to be out there with the practical, physical skills, okay, that are going to be able to do the high income work. So what are your thoughts on that, Paul? Do you agree with me? Do you disagree with me? No, I completely agree. Um, I think it's um, some of the, the jobs out there or the job roles that you can go into when you're a young person are glamorized to the fact that getting your hands dirty mm. as it were um it isn't isn't seen as a, as a noble profession anymore but houses will always still need to be built people always need hot water they're always going to need heating they're always going to need electricity they're all going to need these basic services and it's a simple demand and supply curve isn't mm -hmm. it really mm -hmm. so the, the less people you've got available to do it the the higher the price that they're going to be able to command and when you look at as these industries are changing and being developed you're always going to have a role for a person mm -hmm. you know it can't just be taken over as you said by ai you know? mm. and then um, i think like i said the ai is going to be a big shock to the system for some people in in different industries so yeah i mean absolutely you think back to pandemic times when you know the construction sector we backed the right horse coming into this training business because you know when i started this it was two months before the pandemic and i didn't at the time know that that was coming and actually the construction sector was allowed to continue to run where 80% of the other sectors were all shut down. So it was, it was just perfect timing, um, perfect opportunity all married together. But you know, you had bricklayers that were and are still commanding five, six, seven hundred, a thousand pounds a day. You know, imagine getting paid a thousand pounds a day to go on a building site and lay a brick. Now there's an art to laying bricks. I'm, you know, it's a skill and it's a profession and it's a craft, it's a trade, you need to learn it to get good at it, but it's basic in its form. And being paid a thousand pounds a day to lay bricks, that's five grand a week. That's, um, that's um, 20,000 pounds a month, or that's a quarter of a million pounds a year to be a 
um, to be a tradesperson. You know, it's incredible money. And if you're a plumber, you know, a plumber, an electrician, in this day and age, you should be making a thousand pound a day as a one man band. Yeah, the money is incredible. And I do believe also the employed tradespeople, you know, an employed plumber now, they should be making minimum 50, 60, 70,000 pounds um, a year in salary. You know, I know that you, when you were getting towards the end of um, selling your previous business, Paul, that you're paying your top guy, I think you offered him 90,000, didn't you, to go on the I books? I did, yeah. It was, well, I, I worked out, it was very easy figures for me. And, and like, before uh, we get into that, I, I grew my business through, um, through that lockdown. Mm. I got lockdown envy, seeing everybody yep. at home doing all this personal development stuff and spending time with the kids and I'm yep. out there just killing it. But I think there's two lessons there as well. One it being the fact that you should make hay while the sun shines yep. as well. So if there's an opportunity that presents itself in business, jump on mm. it. Um, and then don't look at the labour and the people that you need to actually grow that business as a, as a cost. Look at it as an investment. So if you invest into the salespeople and the engineers that are going to bring money into your firm, then you will be able to grow off the back of that. Now, yeah, my best engineer, he was charging me about two grand a week, three mm -hmm. grand a week, actually, as a subcontractor. Mm. So to offer him 90 grand to come on the cards, you know, sounds like a fantastic figure, but he turned it down because he knew how much he could make anyway, just on, yeah. you know, um, just as a subcontractor. But if you don't, well, I've done it both ways. I've paid really bad wages, mm. which I thought were good at the time. So 35, 40 grand a year mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. to my first few engineers. Second engineer, Carl, I found out after three or four days he was selling weed from the back of the van. <laughs> so, you know, you get what you pay for. Multiple streams of income. Yeah, he didn't need my job, he just needed Plumbing a Plumbing in the van. daytime, <laughs> drug dealer and his lunch break. Exactly, yeah. So he just wanted a marked up van to hide in plain, plain sight. But, um, yeah, but as soon as you start paying 50, 60 grand a year plus, then that's when you start getting the decent people. And that's what people say on our academy. Where do I find decent people? Mm. We pay them well, you get the decent ones. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You go out and headhunt them. But again, you know, it's naturally getting harder and harder and harder, harder, mm -hmm. and it's simple supply and demand. Mm -hmm. You know, the guys at the top, they can write their own price tag. Mm -hmm. Now, name me another sector um, where you can pretty much walk into any job right now and get paid a minimum of £60,000 a year. Because a good quality gas engineer, a good quality electrician, it's not can they get a job, it's which job do they want. Mm. Yeah, and how much are they going to say that they need to get paid? I mean, can you think of any other sectors right now where you can walk into it? I don't know, maybe, maybe, um, maybe kind of the medical profession or maybe, I don't know, I don't know what HGV drivers come to mind. Mm -hmm. I know there was a shortage of those guys for a while, but there's nothing that comes to mind in many, many sectors where you can just say, this is how much I'm going to be paid. In fact, those jobs are disappearing. Mm -hmm. They're not being created anymore, are they? No. You know, the efficiencies, the technology, they're destroying jobs, whereas construction, you know, tell me how a machine is going to be able to become a service and repair engineer that's going to go around and do whatever they need to do. It's not going to happen is it of course it's not you ain't going to get a robot to go on somebody's roof and fit solar panels you know maybe in the next hundred years when it's done by drones or it's done by actual robots doing the work but for the next 20 30 years the construction sector in my opinion for people that just want to have a high paid job is a dead cert for people that want to start and create a very lucrative business it's a dead cert and again you know just remember 
the, the construction sector is probably one of the least, um, one of the lowest barrier to entry businesses. Having a service business, if you're good at the job, in most cases means you can start tomorrow, okay? Because all you end up doing is just doing what you did for your company for your boss, okay? Now, growing a business, which is what the trade mastermind teaches you to do, how to scale and systemize is different to becoming a sole trader. But if you want to run a sole trader business, you know, it's easy, very little investment, low barrier to entry stuff. And, you know, for those people that are employed out there in the construction sector right now, I really hope that we start to pick up on this show um, lots and lots of employed um, construction professionals that are looking to start their own business. Because, you know, I, I, would, I would argue that why would you work for somebody... Um, as a top engineer when you can go and start your own business and probably double your income doing maybe the same amount, if not less, work. And especially if you come at it from an education, an education point of view so you know what you're doing. Most people that run a small business and are stressed by it is usually because they don't know what they're doing. It's not because it's a stressful environment. Stress is usually created through a lack of knowledge. It's not created through too much pressure because you know, being a one-man band is only pressure if you don't have some of the basic functions set up like who am I working for? Where are my jobs coming from? What's my pricing? You know, how am I managing my cut margins? Yeah. You know, which is whether you're a one-man band or whether you've got a thousand people, they're still core principles, aren't they? Yeah, of course they are. Yeah, um, and and to be fair, you make a good point about people coming out of employment. That's how most people even start their own businesses, isn't it? You just get to a certain point, a certain comfort level in the firm that you work at. And you think I could do this better than them. Yeah. But you also haven't seen the other side of the uh, the coin there, have you? And, and see what they may be going up against. It also, though, means that you've only got them <coughs> as a reference. So it makes you wonder why people then just repeat the same mistakes that their employer used to make. Eventually, without that, having that any other becomes guidance. their blueprint, doesn't yeah, it? Exactly. It's like they need to adapt that because you probably did the same as what I did. Mm got a van, bought yep. some tools, and then, you know, said I'm now a business owner. Yep. You know, you can get cards. this piece of paper <laughs> where you go on company's house and you pick a nice name and then you go and register it as a limited company. I can still remember the first day I got my registration certificate back and it said Managing Director of Impregas, Joseph Valente. I was like, put it in a plastic wallet, stuck it on the wall, and then I was like, I'm a fucking boss now. <laughs> yeah, I'm a business owner now. I'm an MD now. And... Um, you know, it's almost like giving someone a driving license that's never done a, a lesson. Mm. You know, what's going to happen? What happened if every 16-year-old... I don't think there's an age limit to setting up a company in your name. There might well be, but I don't know, actually. Something to fact-check there. But, you know, imagine getting every 16-year-old saying, here's a car, off you go. It's going to be chaos. Now we wonder why that age-old stat of 90% um, of businesses fail in their first year. Yeah, no shit, because they don't know what they're doing. Yeah, it's quite obvious, isn't yeah, it? that's it. So um, I put a post out on LinkedIn the other day saying that I think there should be a basic test um, for every business um, owner that wants to register a company to show they're competent in, um, you know, the basic fundamentals. 
finance, sales, marketing, systems, processes, operations, recruitment, and so on and so forth. And that was it. Oh, I mean, LinkedIn was in uproar. <laughs> oh, you've made it now, and you're pulling the ladder up. You're trying to stop entrepreneurship. Blah, 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 blah. People didn't get it. I don't know why they didn't get it, but they don't get it because they don't understand um, actually what scaling up a business is like. And they also don't understand what goes wrong because I think people seriously can fuck themselves up, you know? Mm. They really can. You know, they start getting in credit, they take out loans, they get into debt, you know, they start pricing stuff, they don't get the right insurances, you know, and all of these things are um, very, very dangerous um, for your future if you get it wrong. You know, some people come in, they create a load of fucking mess, they don't know how to manage the money, and then they blow out, and they're forever paying it back for the, the rest of their time. And then they end up going back to what they were doing anyway. That's it. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And um, it's, it's through no, no fault of their own either sometimes, because they just do keep winging it and winging it and winging it until it goes wrong. All right, well, look, we've got a good question here that I want to ask you, Paul, I want to talk to you about. And I think this is something that... Um, Something that, you know, pains me, and I don't know if this happened to you, but if you're a tradesman out there and this has happened to you, I want you to let us know in the comments on this video, yeah? Get in touch with us and let us know. Van statistics show that two-thirds of trades businesses have been a victim to van-related crime, mm -hmm. yeah? You know, having their vans broken into, their tools stolen, and their livelihood taken away. I mean, it's really not a nice feeling. And I remember when it happened to me, it actually happened to me twice. And I came down in the morning and my van back door was ajar. And I was thinking, okay, I must have left the fucking van open. Anyway, I looked in there and it was a mess. And my van was always super, super neat and super tidy. And I was like, there was kind of a drill box that had moved. And I was thinking, did I rag this van about on the way home last night or something? <laughs> anyway, I looked no, in you? further <laughs> and... Um, all my tools are gone. And I was like, fuck, that's it. I, you know, all my tools, my drills, my hand tools. You know, I had lots and lots of jobs booked in that day. And so I had to go and spend another £2,000 on going on buying all of the stuff again. So, I mean, it really wasn't nice. And, um, you know, did it happen to you? Has it happened to yeah, you? Yeah, it did. Yeah, not overnight. It was um, actually when I was on the job. And, uh, really? And nipped, <laughs> nipped down to the van to get something, but left it unlocked when I went back into the house. And then when I came back down another time, because I don't know if you were like me, where you're constantly forgetting stuff and you get yep. your 10,000 steps in just going <laughs> from the boiler. And um, I used to work smart, Paul, and get apprentices. Right, I got you. Yeah, okay, yeah. I was still your true one-man band, so <laughs> I was doing it all by myself. But, um, yeah, and I came back. SDS drills gone. Core drills gone. You know, all, pretty much every power tool I had had just been nicked within the space of about two or three minutes. But that's uh, central London for you. Yeah. So, but you can look at it and you go, when you don't have a lot of profit coming at that time, and I certainly didn't. So it was maybe two or three weeks worth of profit just mm -hmm. to buy myself back. Yeah. So you've got no choice because if you don't go and buy it back and put it on the credit card, mm. then you, you're done, aren't you? So yeah. it takes away the ability to... to it's really it. frustrating. And, you know, I think that there needs to be more awareness around it. And, mm. you know, people just need to know they've got to make sure that they're being safe with their stuff because, mm. you know, once you, um, once you lose those tools... You're, um, you're not just losing the money that you're spending on the tools, you're using the money that those tools will make you. Mm -hmm. um, that's for sure. Okay, so we've got some questions from the audience that we want to answer for you. First ones first is Dave from Kent has said, I'm struggling to generate leads for my electrical business. Have you got any tips on how I can 
generate consistent inquiries. Let's um, get you to answer that one, shall we, Paul? Yeah, no worries. Um, I mean, people massively underestimate sometimes the amount of work that needs to go into actual lead generation, especially when it's for jobs that you actually want to do. So when I was uh, working on the tools, I used to have about 150 quid a month being spent on checker trade, and then that was just whatever came my way, really. I had no control whatsoever of what was gonna come in, and I certainly had no control over the volume. So I think what you need to do is actually concentrate on exactly what leads first it is that you want to generate, and then go to specific places where you can actually find those type of leads. Once you've got a bigger funnel, and you need to fish with a wide net, really, uh, so go out and, and find maybe four or five or six sources, lead gen sites, Google advertising, check a trade, trust a trade, depending on what your actual um, leads you're actually going to go for, um, and then start getting used to spending money. Like I said, I was only getting 155 pound a month, I think it was, for check a trade mm. when I was doing leads, and then by the time I sold the business, I was doing 12 grand a month in leads. Yeah. Um, but the, what's normally stops people from doing that is having the confidence to spend the money because they haven't got the confidence in the back end result. Yeah. So yeah. and that all just comes from um, from tracking, but. If, if in times when you're struggling, if you turn the lead gen off or if you actually turn any sort of lead source off, you've just killed any sort of flow of revenue into your business. Mm, so mm. You, you've just stopped your business by turning off and just trying to save money in the wrong area. Obviously, um, at the Trade Mastermind, me and Paul see hundreds and hundreds of businesses that come through um, our training programs. And one of the things that's really common across the construction sector is that the amount being spent on marketing is so small for so many businesses that that's the main reason, in my opinion, that most businesses aren't growing is because they're not spending on leads to make sales. And is that the amount being spent on marketing is so small for so many businesses that that's the main reason, in my opinion, that most businesses aren't growing is because they're not spending on leads to make sales. And they have their benefits and they have their restrictions. And I think the best thing I can recommend off the back of the question is to make sure you get trained. You know, come to one of our free training days and come and learn about how to become a marketeer. Because one of the skills that every business owner must have, in my opinion, first and foremost, is to be good at marketing. People try and outsource it all the time, but you're outsourcing your creation and it's good to outsource those resources to help, but you've still got to be the driving force. Okay, great. Um, so next question, when should I step back off the tools and be in business full time, says Craig coming from Portsmouth. Okay, so I'll take this one. So when should I step back off the tools? As soon as possible. The tools are a trap. They hold you back and they will keep you there um, forever if you let them. People have this misconception that the tools make you money. The tools are a cost of delivery. The sale is what creates the income. And so as quickly as you can possibly do it, you need to be off setting that requirement to an engineer. Yeah, You need to give it to somebody to do the work. Because if you're doing the tools all day, every day, who's focusing on the leads? Who's getting the sales? Who's managing the cash flow? Who's checking the profits? And if you don't do that bit, the tail's wagging the dog and you end up becoming a busy fool that just churn jobs at the front end. And that's the same if you're a one-man band and it's the same if you're a small um, to medium-sized construction company. Taking your eye off the ball from the finances is where many, many people go wrong. So 
you've got to get back far, you've got to get off the tools fast. Now, the biggest challenge that most people have is that they become a one-size-fits-all business on day one. We start, we brand up our vans, service, maintenance, repair, breakdown, installation, commercial, industrial, domestic. And we think that we can suddenly, because we know a bit about all of these sectors, we think we can touch and tap into all of these sectors. Well, you know, it's just near on impossible for a one-man band to be able to spread themselves across that many different um, landscapes. And so you've got so much inconsistency, such a variety of work, no clarity on margin pricing and profits, that what you'll find is that what you'll find is, is that you just don't have a business model that gives you the confidence to be able to hire. The, the, the things that you need to create a consistent business model is consistent quantifiable leads and a niche down product with a big enough order value with a solid enough profit to be able to hire against that. 50, 60, 70 quid, 100 pound jobs. People want to churn through those jobs to keep an engineer busy, but there's not enough profit associated those, to those jobs to make it worthwhile. You need to run a proactive, not a reactive business model to be able to set yourselves up for success. Excellent. Okay, guys. Well, thank you very much for the questions. We're going to pick up some more questions on next week's episode. Please make sure you like and subscribe to the Trade Mastermind YouTube channel. Make sure you follow us on TikTok. Make sure that you come to our next discovery day and find out how you can grow your business. Paul Selman is our head coach. He will be training you. He will be teaching you. He will be helping you and showing you how he went from 120,000 a year in his trade and construction business to building a seven-figure trade and construction business in just 15 months. Sold and exited for six figures. Now he trains all of our businesses in all of the verticals, the Construction Academy, the Solar Academy, and the Boiler Academy of how to replicate his success using the blueprint that we created at the Trade Mastermind to teach tradespeople how to become business people. Click on the link below. Thanks for listening to the episode and don't forget to drop us a review if you've liked today's show. Thank you for listening to the Trade Mastermind Trade Secrets Podcast. If you want to find out how Trade Mastermind can help you further, head to our website, trademastermind.co.uk. And don't forget to like and subscribe.